0: I don't want to be the biggest property management company. I want to be the best.
1: Welcome closers. Today we have another episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast coming at you. This is is Season 2 on sales. I'm your host, Jordan Moila, and every week I interview world-class property management entrepreneurs and industry experts who share actual insights to help you grow your property management empire. So whether you manage a 100 or a 1,000 units, this broadcast is designed to help you see the big picture and give you the tools and tactics that you need to get to the next level. I don't throw darts at a board. I bet on sure things. Sweet Sun Tzu, the art of war. Every battle is won before it's ever fought. Think about it. Today, we have a special guest. We're fortunate to have none other than Dan Butler with us. Dan Butler is one half of Crestcore Realty. We had his partner in crime on the podcast just recently, Douglas Skipworth. And I wanted to have Dan on to hear the other half of the perspective of what drives Crestcore, what makes it special. So some background and context, Crestcore is a little bit of a different animal in that these are folks that have been really focused on doing real estate investment themselves. That's their jam. They've scaled it. And out of that knowledge and awareness and DNA, they've scaled the management company. You would think that these things would be fairly related, but honestly, sometimes they're not. Some people that run management companies have no experience doing firsthand real estate investment themselves. These guys are about as far on the other end of the spectrum as you can get. So we're going to be talking about what works with that strategy, the downsides potentially of that strategy, and uh, just diving into the details. So welcome
0: to the show, Dan. Uh, Thanks for having me. Glad to be on.
1: So let's start here. Fill in some gaps for me. I just told this story that you do a lot of real estate investing. <laughs> Quantify it, like, like put some numbers and parameters around what that looks like.
0: So you know, we, we have a core business, the property management company, which was started to really to manage our own property. So we manage twenty five hundred units, mostly single family duplexes, and then small multifamily, kind of that twenty to forty unit apartment. We probably do four or five hundred like that. We have a sales brokerage which is huge. That drives a lot of our business to help investors buy and rehab and then manage those properties. And then we created a maintenance company a couple of years ago, which has been phenomenal. Uh, part of the a business where we have all of our licenses uh, to handle all the needs for maintenance.
1: Got it. So let's talk specifically about your own portfolio, got into the business, making yep. your own investments. How did you get into real estate investing? What was the allure? What was it like to kind of walk through the first stages of that process?
0: My journey started in high school and college. I helped a mentor of mine, Al Wills, uh, in Greenville, South Carolina. He owned real estate, and I was kind of the grunt guy. You know what I mean? Like I was cutting the grass, boarding up windows, whatever he needed me to do, you know, hand him the tools. And in those driving around from, you know, house to house and building to building, he just taught me about wealth creation. And, and so it stuck with me all through college, you know, and then I moved to Memphis, Tennessee back in 1998, and knew right when I landed that I wanted to get in real estate. I was in operations and manufacturing, but just had that bug and just knew that's, that's kind of where I wanted to go. And the beauty of it is I didn't realize I was, I was landing in one of the best cities in the country to invest in real estate. I had no idea. You know what I mean? Like, and I still didn't really realize it until it really became, you know, on social media and news, you know, several years later, because you're just in your, in your zone right. in Memphis, Tennessee, buying and holding. You just thought, Wow, I, I, I think the whole world's like this, but it really isn't. So, I was just buying and holding, and I did the Burr strategy. That was my kind of my mo.
1: Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, Burr, popularized by I've seen that on the bigger pockets for it. Bigger
0: so pockets, that's you right.
1: Just explain briefly
0: what that is. I had a long care business in high school, so I was able to buy my first property right out of college. Moved to Memphis back in the early two thousands. Things were just appreciating like crazy. Created a line of credit off my first townhouse here in Memphis, Tennessee. And I would just buy one house, then buy the second. I'd be fixing up the first one, you know, while I was looking for that second one, get it rented, refinance with a bank, and then just get the money back and leapfrog. And I just kept doing that over and over again, uh, one after the other, and, and got it to where you know I was doing a couple year to ten a year to you know twenty a year, and just build it from there.
1: And how long were you in it, or how big did the portfolio get before you jumped from part time to full time?
0: So 2001, I was by myself. 2006, Douglas and I partnered together. We play off real, well, real well with each other, our strengths versus weaknesses. We like different parts of the business. And so we started doing that in 2006, started managing for others in 2010 and buying for others kind of in that same that same range. We actually created CrestCore in December 2012, and I didn't quit till September of 14. And by that time, we owned probably – I don't know, four or 500 houses. We were managing 1,200 properties. Douglas and I were just working on a strategy for me to quit my full-time job. I was over 10 plants in manufacturing, so that was a, that was a big leap of faith for me to, to quit that. A good job, I was very autonomous in my job, good benefits and all that kind of stuff, but we knew that if we were gonna take it to the next level, I needed to quit uh, that job and, and go to full-time real estate. So you know, working 90 plus hours a week, grinding out seven days a week, you know, between manufacturing and real estate. And so I hadn't looked back though, man, I hadn't looked back. It's been an awesome journey. Wish I'd done it sooner, but things happen for a reason and and stars align. And I was getting that corporate experience from, you know, I worked at Georgia Pacific operations and we're able to apply that a lot of that learning to to our current operations.
1: Got it. So what I'm hearing is that you built a quite enviable portfolio and business just on the side, kind of a part of the (laughs) time. yeah I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean uh, uh, people joke with us about that I mean it was that's literally kind of how we did it to be honest with you we just Doug's and I are just uh, love to work you know just we're built to, to work and build we enjoyed working with each other and just what we learned really early on when we partnered was one plus one equals three kind of like in a marriage you don't keep score have you ever heard that that's yeah, one of the first yeah. pieces of advice I got it's like a football game don't keep score and so <laughs> Some days he'd be working harder than me, and he'd know I was, you know, because I was traveling and managing plants. The next day I'd be working until, you know, the midnight oil, get something out we needed for, you know, a package we're buying or whatever that was. And so we just didn't keep score. We just kept our heads down and focused on building uh, a portfolio. So. Got it. Makes sense.
1: So let's talk a little bit about some of the distinctives of Crestcore. This came up a lot on the podcast that I did with Douglas, but if I was Mm going to sum it up, I would say the fact that you have a DNA that is so investor centric, having done it yourself, I assume Mm -hmm. that that creates a fluidity conversationally where when people talk about attraction based branding or marketing, There's a pull and a magnetism, not only through the relationships, but also because of how you're able to facilitate a conversation and just really project the needs and desires of other investors. That's what I'm seeing from the outside. But I'm also observing Mm -hmm. that you're going to a lot of industry events, et cetera. Talk to me about how you think about CrestCorp's market positioning and branding.
0: You hit the nail on the head. I mean, we, we were investors first. And so that's a great conversation piece. You know, we eat our own cooking. Have you ever heard the book Pleased But Not Satisfied? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great little book. I mean, real, real quick read, but okay. basically, every day we've improved, so we're pleased, but we're not satisfied. Mm-hmm. Because we own a, a large portion of what we manage, until our business is 100% leased, 100% collected, and zero maintenance, we're not satisfied.
1: So, what I'm hearing you say is that your own properties are integrated in your portfolio and you treat them the same way that you treat any other investor's portfolio. So, rather than saying, we treat your properties like we would treat our own. You're saying we treat your properties like we do actually treat. We do
0: actually. That's right. Like Doug's not, we ran this morning. I think, you know, we'd run every other day and that's our kind of our strategy business meetings. Um, We've been doing that for 14 plus years, but this morning we were just talking about that. You know, we're at, you know, mid month, we're at 90% collected. We're not talking about our properties. We're talking about everybody's property. So we know if we're getting 95, 97, 98% of the businesses, then ours are also in that mix as well. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're managing.
0: We look at those numbers. We don't. There's nobody in our departments or in our business that lumps up out. You know, well, how are Dan and Douglas's portfolio? You know, like we're looking at the, the whole business. You know, we don't. We don't have a separate scorecard. Maybe we should. You know, like for our own benefit, but we try to drive the business to drive our results for our own properties. So.
1: Got it. That makes sense. So let's walk through what a conversation may look like with a potential investor. The conversation that I had with Douglas kind of indicated that a lot of the influx of new properties comes through the brokerage side of the business. So how do people find you currently? Are you do you guys just known in the market as deal hounds? What how what does that infrastructure look like?
0: I do a radio, Facebook this morning, actually. We do it every Tuesday. We've been doing it two years in June, and that's part of creating that content. But, you know, the whole point is we're constantly talking to people. My sales manager was joking with me this morning. I had a lunch with a wholesaler yesterday and then we're meeting a banker tomorrow. And you just, part of our, our gig is just being in front of people and creating those relationships. And it's not just, what can you do it for me? It's, it's a win-win. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, the wholesaler, I was trying to help him create systems and processes to get his, he was doing everything. So I'm trying to help him build his business. Tomorrow, it might be the banker, and it's like, what, what customers can I bring to you to help build your business? We're not just out there saying, "We well, got any houses for me? Or do you have any clients that you know? You know, like that's not, that's not how we start our conversation. Our conversation is more about what can we do to you to help further your business?
1: You're approaching this as a peer relationship. And it sounds like some of the common thread there is just relating to entrepreneurs as entrepreneurs, just kind of exploring yep. relationships that can come out of that, knowing that what you do is similar enough that there's going to be some natural synergy.
0: That's right. And they're going to think of you first, right? You know, when something does come up that they know is related to either our maintenance or our brokerage or our property management, then they're going to think of us first. I mean, Douglas literally was just at lunch an hour ago and met a guy at lunch that we were friends with. And he happened to be managed by somebody else. He's like, well, he's not quite satisfied. Boom. We're in there with, you know, talking to him about three to five houses. And it's all because we know this guy and we keep in contact with him and He's a local turnkey provider. So you just never know where those conversations are going to lead. And just to your point, I think Douglas and I, to your about being at seminars and different things, we're just constantly talking to people. You know, we're just constantly, how can we help? You know, and then how do we build each other up? You know? And that's kind of our kind of our philosophy and how we go after it.
1: What are your views on turnkey? What's the good and the bad that you've seen with the turnkey model?
0: You know, we do turnkey alternative. One of the big reasons we started property management, how it grew so fast early on was we partnered with turnkey providers and wholesalers because they didn't have a good property management solution. Right. And so some turnkey just want to sell. Turnkey to me is just if you really want to be passive, if you just want to click a button and buy a house and it's cash flow on day one, that's, that's the route to go. The downside is you, you're going to pay, you know, quote unquote, a premium either at retail or above because they're selling it at a, at a return multiple you know, versus other strategies that could leave some equity in it and, and that kind of thing. So,
1: do you have any commentary on what would differentiate a good turnkey provider? Because some of the um, the winds and whisperings of what I hear is that there's turnkey and that there's turnkey in the sense that anybody that is attracted to the promise of a experience where basically anybody that's attracted to any kind of a turnkey offering is willing to avoid a, a certain level of operational due diligence within the good or service. And that can be exploited by a provider that basically says, hey, it's turnkey, but somewhere on the backside, there are gaps in their process, or there are gaps in their infrastructure. So if you were doing due diligence as a consumer on a turnkey operator, what would you look for?
0: A couple of things, kind of the same thing with the property manager we talked about. Are they investing in their own product? You know, how many turnkey providers do you, do you talk to that they actually buy their own product and they're filling up their portfolio? Or are they actually just selling to others just a product and moving on? Does that make sense? Like, yeah. are they keeping some for themselves and selling some? Or are they just totally selling? Where people, you know, get in trouble is the level of the rehab. You know, there's turnkey providers that just put lipstick on a pig. Mm hmm. You know, versus, no, sir, we put a new roof, we put new HVAC, put new plumbing, the floors are all new. You know what I mean? Like, what's the deepness of the level of that rehab? And that's going to make a huge difference short-term and long-term on the the performance of that property. You know, if you put lipstick on a pig, you're going to be having maintenance issues, you know, within six months. You know, we got some friends in town that that do the full, and, you know, they don't mind we're putting a a one-year warranty on Turnkey Mm -hmm. on their services because everything's brand new. Mm-hmm. So that to me, that's some of the, the differences that I see.
1: Got it. So deal flow, inventory for your existing client base, many of whom are investors, how do you facilitate putting new deals in front of them? Where do you source inventory? And how involved do you get in that process of putting inventory out there?
0: Basically, we've worked hard to put a sales process and a, a sales team together. Basically, Douglas and I just pass off any kind of lead, listing or buyer lead, right into our our sales process, and immediately they're going to get an email template telling us about who Crestcore is, our turnkey alternative process, uh, videos explaining step by step how it works, you know, strategic partners that will be involved with insurance and uh, accounting and those kind of things. So we just pass that on to the we basically dump it in the funnel and let the system take care of it. So. Breakdown turnkey
1: alternative for me.
0: Uh, It's basically that burst strategy that we grew up on. You know, just, we walk alongside the investor. We will help that investor find that property. We'll get it under contract. We'll get our construction company to do a rehab bid. And then if they close it, we'll immediately start the rehab and then turn it right over to the property management as soon as the rehab is done.
1: And how do you work with them to find the property?
0: Wholesalers, banks, uh, Craigslist, uh, MLS—you know any source that we can find—we are blasting out emails to property management companies, real estate agents, wholesalers. Hey, we got an investor looking for a three-two, you know, fifteen hundred square foot rents for nine hundred. Send me everything you got in all aspects of the business. You can't wait for it to come to you.
1: Mm-hmm. Right?
0: You know, there's a lot of agents probably sitting on something or are about to get something. You got to go prick that lead and get that lead coming to you and then you can get it and run with it.
1: How does the pricing, and the financial model work in situations like that for the turnkey alternative model where you're sourcing the deal as opposed to the management fee, et cetera, if somebody just brings you three properties and they have no interest in purchasing any additional ones?
0: Yeah, so for us on the turnkey alternative model, in which, you know, like you said, Douglas alluded to, that's, that's a big portion of our business that drives our growth and property management is helping buyers buy more. And that's who we really align with versus the accidental landlord. But we charge a flat fee commission to help them buy. And we charge a flat fee commission or rehab fee to oversee the rehab. So very transparent. They know what the numbers are. We explain what you're getting with that. And so it's a pretty easy quote unquote sell because they realize that we're going to get them in that property for less than they would a turnkey because we, we got flat rates and we're not charging a premium to buy it. Because when you buy it and you do the turnkey, you got the holding cost, you got the premium, the value add of all the team and the overhead you've got to own that property versus just helping purchase and rehab along the way.
1: If somebody does the turnkey alternative model and they end up purchasing and now you're managing, is that mm-hmm. management fee going to be significantly different than if somebody that just brought you three existing properties?
0: No, it's, it's basically the same. We try to stick to the same. You know, we try to stick to the same rate for everybody that's a tough part of this business because everybody's looking for a deal, right? And we've talked about this. We do a lot of technology, try to be the forefront of the things out there that are up and coming with, with services. So we spend a lot of money in infrastructure and, and software and all that kind of stuff to be proactive in how we manage a property. So.
1: Got it. So let's lean into that. Cause you just started talking about costs and expenses. Yeah. I'm trying to understand frankly, why more people don't do this because as a consumer, this sounds so attractive. The fact that we would have infrastructure around delivering on the promise of wealth creation, property management by nature, mm-hmm. the words property management, what does it imply? What it implies is that you're preventing something bad from happening. There's nothing right. to the name that implies that you're helping facilitate wealth creation through real estate, which is really the only interesting story that exists in our industry. You guys are actually putting some muscle behind that. We're seeing some talk about pocket listing inventory, putting that in front of existing owners, and some folks kind of trying to polish that up. But what you're doing is even more proactive than that. Why do you think that there's not more infrastructure investment in these kinds of programs, given the the potential upside and how conducive it is for getting the right kind of client, i.e., investors?
0: You know, I think that people are just uh, hesitant to change. You know, and, and one of our core values is change, and so again, it's part going back to we're investors first, you know, we're always looking for the cutting edge piece that's going to separate us. And I was telling somebody this other day, I don't want to be the biggest property management company. I want to be the best Mm -hmm. because when you're the best, then you can start charging more for your services. I mean, like that, that's where people get lost in trudging along. And this is how property management has always been done. But if you can be the best by automation and being proactive and being communicative with the tenants and the clients, you know, and, and just going above and beyond, for not just average and, you know, answer the question when it comes in. No, answer the question before they ask you, both on the tenant side and the client side. You create a real value there, right? You know, I had lunch with the client last week. We were talking about that because he loves how we're pushing out information to him. We're, we're pushing out how leasing is going on his particular house, how many calls, how many showings, what was the comments on the property. Then he can make some more decisions on should we lower the rent or should we offer a special. And so when you start doing that, you're building the building blocks to be able to charge more in management fees down the road.
1: Let's talk about what does the, the management structure look like? Are you guys portfolio, departmental? Presumably you're a hybrid like everybody. What are the nuts and bolts of who manages client-facing communications look like?
0: We've really split it into tenant focus, client focus, and then getting things done with the maintenance side, So, which really is departmental focus. You've got the maintenance team that's, that's making sure that basically the call center for maintenance and for mainline and, and that kind of stuff. We have seven people. That's all they do is help clients all day, every day. We went over the top and we probably could get it done. If we were a reactive model, we probably could get it done with two or three people, but we've chosen to go you know six, seven deep to just go over the top and push out communication versus just waiting for a question.
1: Yeah, I love it.
0: So I think we're more department focused. We don't do portfolio management. So if I call in... Yep.
1: I'm not necessarily going to talk to John each time. It's going to be John or Tom or whoever.
0: The functions are, separate client services, they are more client-based because we're trying to have one point of contact. So if you do call in and Jordan has houses with us, he's going to go to one specific person every time. So we get to know you and get to know your you know specifics of what you like. So that's your client liaison, but they're not managing your properties on the back end.
1: Dan, what I'm hearing you say is that you're really interested in trying to get the best of both worlds with having that client focus of one-to-one relationships and yet the efficiency of scale. Is that more or less accurate?
0: Yeah, I, I, that's a good way to say it. I think kind of like the, in maintenance, do you, you want a jack-of-all-trades or you want a specialist? And so we want people specialized in collections that have the personality type and skills and detail to do that. Same thing in leasing. Leasing needs to be more of a bubbly, a closer you know, a socializer. I think you've heard us talk about culture index before. That's our survey we use to, to align people's, you know, their inerrant behaviors. Mm
1: -hmm. We
0: try to put the right people in the right seats, Mm -hmm. even client services. We know what that person needs to look like that needs to be in that client services role. They need to get answers. So they need to be very buttoned up, very detailed because owners don't really care about sugarcoating and having like a nice conversation. They want answers. You know what I mean? Like, they want especially to, your
1: owners, <laughs> investors. Right?
0: Investors, that's right. That's right. Now, I could see an accidental landlord wants to be more touchy-feely and, and feel warm about what's going on. No, ours are guys, you know, entrepreneurs. They want answers, and they want it quickly, and that's all they care about. So,
1: What is the cadence of a portfolio review that is numbers-focused? How often do you do those with your clients? What does that look like?
0: So what we do right now is – Weekly updates, we email the owners. Leasing updates, uh, both automated and a personal touch. Every you know, week? Every week, yeah. Wow. Rehab updates. So if, you're, if your house is in a turn status, we tell you, you know, hey, it's, it's still scheduled for completion tomorrow on 5-2. Or no, sorry, we had a delay. You know, again, that's stuff that people are going to want to know. They, they went vacant last week. They want to know when it's back on the market. Right. So we try to push that information out every week to our clients. And that's what we're striving for, for even collections, maintenance, all that.
1: But do you do any deeper review than that on, on like an annual basis or any less than frequently, just kind of talking about the growth of their portfolio, et cetera?
0: No, that's, that's a great question that, that we are building to that, you know, giving leasing updates, giving rent ready updates, giving, you know, eventually everybody have their own dashboard. To where they'll see, you know, month to date cash flow, return on their investment year to date, month to date, all that kind of stuff that we're we're working towards to, so that you can sit there at your computer and you because 90% of our investors are out of country or out of the state. You know, there's not many from Memphis. We want them to be able to push a button and just know their asset in Memphis, Tennessee is doing well.
1: Talk to me about maintenance. Why did you do it? When you did do it? Why not sooner? Why not later? And how do you think that your client type, of primarily investors, think differently about maintenance?
0: It's funny. I did a radio show a couple weeks ago. There's a contractor triangle: speed, quality, and price. Pick two. Pick two. Now, (laughs) Douglas wants all three, (laughs) and I'm telling you, you only got two. But you really can't have all three. It's just going to be a balance of what that triangle looks like. Does that make sense? Like yeah. you can have a, a, an average of all three, but you're giving up something. If you, you know, if there's absolutely one that you got to have, another one's going to suffer. But back 2012, it was December. This is very painful. That's why I bring it up. I was, uh, I was at the office in December 15. I just quit, you know, not too long ago. And we thought our mechanical contractor pulled gas permits for about 10 people that were moving in that month. Cause they, right back then foreclosures were big. And so we had 10 tenants moving in with no gas in December. Oh, wow. Not fun. So Doug's and I've just learned over the years, if we want to make it better, we got to control it. Mm-hmm. And so we immediately December by January, we had started city light commercial services, our maintenance wing. I started getting my plumbing license, my HVAC license. And just got after it and created that experience. So we we offer wholesale pricing with the speed we want and the quality that we want for for the rental you know the rental market. So that was the that was the cusp. You know we had to control it because we couldn't wait on third party vendors. If I need to pull a permit now, I just got them sitting in a drawer. Literally fill it out and we can have it down there at code enforcement in thirty minutes. Versus years ago, I was told that you know they're going and then two uh, days later. They still had pulled it. What do you think and- goes
1: wrong for folks that don't get over the hump? I find maintenance to be fairly polarizing. People tend to have strong opinions and either believe that it's a significant profit center or that it's a total pain, avoid it as much as you can, and just try and skim a little bit of profit cream off the top if you can. For the folks that have that negative connotation, do you think that maybe they just didn't get over the hump? Because what you're saying Implicitly makes a ton of sense. Maintenance is going to happen and the person right. that does it is going to represent you, period.
0: Yeah, that's you can't right. send
1: a bunch of clowns to somebody's house and be like, hey, you know, what me, what my company, right? You're associated right. either way. So what, what you're saying is you're just going to take full responsibility by managing the whole thing. What do you think happens
0: for folks that don't quite get over the hump there? What's the secret? I think it's managing people. I mean, I think you got to have a system and a software. I think, you know, that software piece is a big component that I probably think that holds people back. When we first started this journey, you know, we tried some stuff that was with our software, our property management software. It didn't work really well, so I just started searching the big maintenance companies. What do they use? Mm-hmm. I didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so I just found that and paid for it. I mean, it's a big expense up front, but now we text the tenant we're on the way. We text the tenant that's scheduled. We text them when they're working. We text them when it's finished. Like got this communication module. And so guess what? Less calls coming into us because we created a system that's pushing information out to the tenants. Mm-hmm. So not calling every two minutes on every extension in your office. And that's probably where people get hung up because they, now they're owning the maintenance versus, Oh, well I'm waiting on my contractor. You know what I mean? Like pushing it off on somebody else. When you start doing it yourself, you're responsible. You got it. You got to you know perform and give those guys answers. So,
1: is the business managed? Are the maintenance folks treated as first-class citizens in the same way that your your PMs are? I think part of the attitude has to do with maybe the nature of the work, white-collar versus blue-collar. <clears throat> how do you manage, in terms of management and culture, how does City Lights look similar or any different than Crestware?
0: Only a name. That's it. Otherwise, so- it's just a... Same core thing. values. Core values are the same. They talk about the same six core values we have as a company: integrity, personal accountability, you know, uh, character, service. We actually poll every uh, work order the, the day after it's closed. We call them back and ask them how their experience was, and so we take them. If it's less than an eight, we take that and, and the maintenance company is going back to those technicians and having a group meeting and say, "Hey guys, we need to clean up after ourselves. We're getting a few complaints about not being clean enough or." not giving them enough notice or whatever those, and so we're tightening that belt. It's just a lot of work. You got to put in a lot of work on yeah. the front end. <laughs> this is not retail business. I think that's where people probably get stuck too. The margins are a lot slimmer, no matter what your clients think. You know, and that's probably why you heard that a lot on your podcast. Like the margins are slimmer. I can't charge $90 an hour to go change a toy. So, you know what I mean? Like I gotta be much, much less than that. That's what the investors expect. You're coming from a, an environment where people expect the man in a truck Mm-hmm. That that cost model, which that does, you know, so you got to be somewhere in between because we got to provide insurance, uh, liability insurance, workers' comp, all that kind of stuff. So you got to be somewhere in the mi- middle, and you got to do volume. So that's that's the two keys to to getting the maintenance piece to work.
1: Now, do you guys work for external companies as well, or do you just service your own portfolio in the
0: maintenance side? Well, that's a great question. That's exactly why we named it something different.
1: That's what
0: I thought. So yeah, yeah so we are actually we're on our fifth property management company outside of our own that we're doing maintenance. So we manage 2,500 and we're close to 5,000 units doing maintenance for other companies.
1: So that's how you're getting some of that velocity. The
0: scale. velocity. That's right. That's exactly right. So, and that makes you stronger, right? Because you got this outside influence now, you know, not just Crestcore pushing you, which I would argue Crestcore is the hardest customer because they're right across the street. But now you got 5,000 units with five customers and they all want something different. So now you're really honing in your system and getting tight as possible, um, and, and that's what creates you know, the margin that you're trying to create.
1: So here's what's interesting to me about what you're describing. I find in general that entrepreneurs, small business owners, property managers in particular, tend to struggle when dabbling just common sense, right? Mm. Where where you have a diluted focus, it's just going to be tough to get off the ground. Maintenance is one of those areas where you can kind of dabble with it, but not fully commit because it's effectively non-operationalized. Same thing with sales marketing you get folks that come to maybe like a PM grow type event and they're really excited about growth, but when they go about pursuing it, they don't operationalize that work in the same way that they operationalize rent collection, leasing, tenant screening, et cetera. And so as a result, they're throwing some money at it, but they're not all in on owning it and driving it to the same level of conclusion as they are with what they view as their core competency. That to me is a really determining factor. Now what's interesting as it relates to growth is that you guys chose a growth model that was really adjacently related to what you did. Because your growth model could have had nothing to do with investors. And it could have been that you were a master of digital marketing and Douglas was a master of organic search. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat. But the truth is that that is, couldn't be further divorced from real estate investing. So I like just the inherent synergy in the, in what you doubled down in to actually drive that growth. So hats off to you there. When you think about the growth going forward, how do you think about goal planning, goal setting? What are you and Douglas aware of? What is the team aware of, of what's on the horizon?
0: For us, it's each business. And it kind of goes back to what you were talking about, about being all in you know, and I've heard several people on your podcast, there's such a wide varying opinion. We chose a separate company name, separate P&L. If you have a separate P&L and a separate company name, and then a separate leadership that's running it, they're held accountable to make that thing profitable. Mm -hmm. They got to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so to answer your question, each person has their own vision, strategy, each property management, brokerage, and real estate uh, uh, maintenance. They all have their own. Now they're tied together, you know, we make sure that they're 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 synergized and tied together, but they all have their own plan, own plans for growth, their own margin.
1: I want to hear more about it, though, because you've mentioned the concept of um, I think what I'm hearing is some EOS language.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right.
1: All right, so walk me through that. How long have you been doing EOS? What were some hiccups? I'm hearing more and more clients and folks that honestly outside of the industry that are pretty enamored with it what's been your experience thus far and what does it look like day to day
0: you know we've been doing it going on at least 18 months i'd have to go back and look at the original file but you know i think that the key to it is and i tell our people all this all the time the more the harder you work on the front end the easier it'll get long term mm-hmm. and so when we made that commitment we're going to do traction, we had to go all in that means the scorecards the weekly meetings i mean we Literally, at my calendar, you know, on Wednesdays and Tuesdays for the different businesses, it's blocked out. I cannot put anything else in those those time slots. I am there for that level ten traction meeting with the brokerage or the maintenance or the property management. So that's driving that focus every week, and it's got a very specific scorecards and to do list and the discussion section where we're solving problems. So it's every week, it's moving forward in that business but it's got to be consistent. I mean, that's what that's where it's at. I mean, I think that's where people start it, and it's hard to be consistent. You know, it's hard to make sure that you don't plan anything else on that Wednesday from eight to nine 30. So the building block has to be that we're committed and you have that consistency and it's just not checking a box. Well, we have weekly meetings, you know, having a weekly meeting is one thing, having a very focused, intentional weekly meeting is a whole nother ball game that's, you know, to, to making the the change and growth and fixing mistakes and, and moving you forward. So uh, we are all in, in in traction. That's one of our core building blocks. Every business that we have, even the, the supply company that supplies the maintenance company, they even have their own traction meetings. So, you know, no matter how big or small the company is, it's going to have the scorecard and the level 10, the weekly meetings as part of it. So, How
1: long did it take you to get buy-in and to have that, the, the cadence of things really clicking with it?
0: Uh, It was very quick because once people saw that we were solving problems every week and that we all had to-do lists, you know, action items, you know, I might have something I had to go get done. You know, the sales manager, same thing. And so everybody, and then you came back and you you had to show up at that meeting with that, that piece either done or an update that was acceptable for everybody to keep moving things forward. And I'll give you a prime example. Sales made a commitment to do all these things to get us to 30 units a month of sales. And guess what? They're hitting it and they're hitting it early. Now we're our level 10s and our our traction vision meetings. We're we're thinking about bumping it to 40 in the next couple months. You know, what do we need to do to get to 40? They get buy-in because they see the numbers and see everything start moving and see everything get tighter and tighter. And it makes their job easier, right? Because you start automating things, you start delegating things, you're leveraging others, uh, putting systems in place. So it actually gets easier versus harder. That's what people don't get sometimes. They just want to trudge along, you know, that whole e-myth, you know just in the business, not on the business.
1: Now did you guys have a implementer that helped you turn that into a reality? or did you do it on your own?
0: Douglas Douglas was the <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, one of his, that's one of his strong suits, so we, we appreciate Douglas's uh, making sure we're going to be there at that meeting every week and have the agenda lined out and so early on. but now the business unit leaders do it themselves. but uh, we just read the book, All as a team, chapter by chapter actually is how we started. And just reviewed what that chapter meant to each of one of us and how we would apply that chapter into our business. So,
1: Got it. Amazing. Awesome. Well, I'm loving yeah. that that's actually working for you. So I want to kind of take things full circle here. I like to ask some rapid fire questions at the end yeah. of the interview. And the first question I have for you is this. Who do you learn from? Are there any entrepreneurs or media figures that you've really gleaned a lot from?
0: this is something that as you get older, you get wiser. And one of the big things that I'm actually learning more from is coaching others, mm. you know, because think about this, you got to be a teacher and a seeker mm-hmm. and you're both at the same time. So as I'm teaching others and coaching others about things, you learn by their questions. They're asking you questions that you may not have th- thought about. And you're like, wow, I didn't think about that before. Now you got to start your mind's churning on because you got, they're coming in from a different angle. Same thing on when I'm coaching somebody. To, they ask me a question, and I and I teach them how I do this, or Douglas and I do this, or whatever. And then you realize, wait a second, I'm not doing that anymore, or I'm not doing it like I was. And so it's a hold hold yourself accountable mechanism that I've learned by helping others by coaching, because you, you just learn that where your shortfalls are by coaching others, and you look back and reflect. So.
1: Great answer. I think you're the first one that's uh, run that one by me, but
0: it It makes sense. No, it totally totally
1: makes sense. I think it's in part, that's like the concept of the ways that you can learn something. You can learn it by studying or you can learn it by teaching others. You have to really intuit things. Next question would be books. So you can't, Mm -hmm. there's no cop out here. You can't tell me you only read books that you've written. What books have you read (laughs) by others that have been impactful for you?
0: Early on, I was in manufacturing. I was 23 years old, and I was managing 50-year-old mechanics, machinists, and I was a young punk out of college, and it wasn't working for me that I was the boss. And so How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm-hmm. which I know has been several, you know, your guest uh, it classic. Yeah, book. It's classic. It's classic, but, you know, I just learned to listen and learned to gain respect, and that's what I learned from that. The next most influential book is, is a quick read, but I've had every staff that I've ever managed read this book. It's called QBQ. You ever heard of that book?
1: No, never heard of it.
0: Question behind the question, personal accountability. Basically, in a premise, we own how we react, right? right? And so instead of asking questions like, why did you do that? Change it to, what can I do to help? So you spend the defensiveness off, right? Yeah. When you say, why? Jordan, why did you do that? Versus, Jordan, I saw this happen. What can I do to help fix that situation? So if I give you that resource to help you fix it, then nothing's left for, but for you to go execute. I would highly recommend that. I've been to his seminars. Uh, I read every book that he's ever written. John Miller, QBQ, question behind the questions.
1: Got it. All right, so we're definitely going to check that out. We're hearing some some more focus on mindset. I mean, this is stuff that that's
0: right.
1: In theory, has nothing to do with property management, but all good thoughts and ideas don't right. They transcend the category. They transcend
0: the vertical. That's right.
1: I have another question and I ask every entrepreneur that I have on the show this question pretty much I think like 99% at least and that is this in your opinion are entrepreneurs born or bred?
0: Oh, man. I've listened to all the answers on this it's so funny to listen to the varied answers. So, but I truly believe that we are born entrepreneurs that we all have innate, you know, characteristics of ourselves that just who we are, our DNA I'm an introvert. You can't meet me an extrovert. You know I can do it, but it's going to take a lot of energy to be that way. And so, but I do believe that they are bred in the sense of, you know, you can have a, somebody that could be an entrepreneur, but they've got to be in the right environment to foster that growth into an entrepreneur. And I learned that a lot through the inner city. So I do a lot of uh, mentoring and coaching in the inner city, and you see somebody that's been on the streets that's uh, never had a chance, been taught to be entitled and. You know what I mean? Like blaming others, and you start coaching and mentoring that person. I've seen people turn, you know, the corner. Now they're, you know, own their own landscaping business. They own a housekeeping business. They own a bouncy bounce rental business. I mean, I can name off dozens and dozens of business like that that you would never have thought that person would be an entrepreneur, but obviously they had something in them that that was pulled out by putting them in the right environment to create that that opportunity.
1: Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I mean, the way I think about it is that when we think about what is determining of success, we tend to reduce things down to decisions, right? At least mm-hmm. if you're successful, that's really tempting. I am successful because I made great decisions and other things. <laughs> didn't. Right. But the reality is there's a reason that I made really good decisions that in large part was based on other people's decisions, what was modeled for me, my circumstances. And poverty, if anything, is – to the extent that poverty is deterministic of your future, it probably has more to do with poverty of mindset and poverty of thought than actual poverty of tangible
0: goods. Oh, uh, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Goods to me has nothing to do with it. It's all mindset.
1: So mindset for yourself, when you think about the career that you've had since you got into this business and a a change or transformation in how you're seeing things now versus when you, at the beginning of your career, what would you have told the early you and just really with, with passion, conviction, tried to get that person to understand early on in the business?
0: Two things jump out at me. I think that, um, one is stop focusing on your weaknesses You know, I think that I spent a lot of time early in my career trying to fix those weaknesses that I had, you know, as a a manager and a leader versus working through others and let them shore up my weaknesses, which leads to part two, I would say, leveraging others. I didn't do that early on, man. I was doing everything myself when, you know, we talked about my early career in real estate. I was collecting rent. I was placing out signs. I was, you know, writing receipts and checks and doing lease. I mean, I did just, and looking back on it, I could have so automated and so leveraged others if I sought out some more mentoring and, and some guidance early on versus it was all on me, I would have probably built it stronger, faster, quicker if I had done that.
1: Was that a conscious thought that got you out of that circumstance or were you forced out of it due to scale?
0: I was forced out of it because of scale. Okay. Yep. The pain. I think uh, Tony Robbins talks about that pain will make a lot of things happen, right? A lot of, a lot of choices, a lot of action. And I had a lot of pain, you know, <laughs> from time to time and just mental anguish. And so I had to figure out something. And so that's when it, that path and that process started to happen for me. Got it.
1: Love it. Well, hey, I appreciate you coming on the show for folks that want to find out more about CrestCore and what you guys are up to. What's one of the best places for them to go?
0: Uh, they can go to CrestCoreRealty.com. They can re- email me at Dan at CrestCore.com. Either way, I'd uh, be glad to help any way I can to any of your listeners.
1: All right. So here's how I want to summarize a potential reason to contact Dan. If you're interested in furthering the idea of facilitating wealth creation through real estate, if you're interested in positioning around that in terms of a brand and actually putting the rubber to the road and having some infrastructure behind that, I think Dan and Douglas are both great guys to contact. They've, they've doubled down and invested in that area. I think that's the magic sauce. I think it's what's going to continue to cause their business to grow and grow decade after decade. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. We'll be following your career
0: again. Uh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the Profitable Property Management Podcast. Please subscribe and leave us a review. Your feedback makes this a better show, and the more reviews we get, the better our guests become. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget that you can find us online in the Profitable Property Management Facebook group, where we mastermind with the best in the industry.